Welcome to HIV Update, a podcast for people who help people with HIV. Brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center. Here's your host, Bob Sidlow. Hello. Welcome to HIV Update, a podcast series for medical providers, nurses, and community health workers. The goal of this program is to inform and share best practices related to care for people with HIV and is brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center, a regional partner of the New England AIDS Education and Training Center. I'm Bob Sidlow, your host, the director of the Connecticut AETC. I'll be joined by my co-host, Sharon McKay, a curriculum development and evaluation specialist with Connecticut AETC. On today's HIV update, the topic is trauma-informed care. And our guest is Marlene Morinino, who's a registered nurse with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing and has a master's in public administration from both from the University of Miami. Marlene, do you want to tell us a little about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. Yes. So um, trauma-informed care has been sort of a passion of mine for um, at least the last uh, decade or so. And, you know, I I, I got into this because I myself... Um, was a victim and I experienced this, this validation of guilt and shame by, by the very systems in place where I work that were designed to you know, provide this care and compassion. And this really resulted in some re-traumatization over and over again. And for many, many years, I have been essentially asked, you know, what is wrong with you? Uh, when someone finally said to me, you know, what happened to you? It really changed the course of my life. And I began this journey um, to recover and to heal. And this is where I learned about trauma and informed care. And I began this in this crusade uh, to ensure that it's foundational for the systems that care for people. And I was trained by the National Association of Mental Health Project Directors, which is the trauma-informed training arm of the substance abuse and mental health um, administration. Well, thank you. Um, so let's start by, I think, defining trauma, because when, when I think about trauma, it's, um, you know, like somebody being in a car accident and having like a physical injury um, or, you know, um, uh, somebody who is uh, abused, like through um, uh, psychological violence or abuse, psychological abuse. Um, so in a bad relationship kind of thing, but what, what is trauma? How, how do we define trauma when we're looking at it? Yeah. And I think, you know, Bob, that is, uh, what I see a lot. I think 10 people tend to create and have their, their own definitions of trauma, you know, based on, on their experiences and their clinical specialties, just like you said, a bodily injury, or, you know, as a, as a nurse, I would think it might be something like blunt force um, trauma. But the, the trauma that we're talking about is more, um, you know, widespread and, and recognized as this, you know, pretty severe public health problem. And it essentially um, is about um, an emotional response to a terrible event, you know, like an accident or um, a rape or, or a natural disaster even. And I think even now today, it's defined in much more broad terms as any type of distressing event or experience that can have an impact on a person's ability to cope and function. And it really, you know, trauma is, is, is an event is traumatic in the degree that it, it, it sabotages a person's sense of safety. 
and creates this feeling of impending doom. Uh, so when you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, safety and security is one of the core. Um, exactly. Right. So. It's that base, you know, that that base of of needs. And if you don't have that initial base, you can't sort of build up upon that. And actually, it's an interesting fact, but it's almost a universal experience of people with mental health and substance use disorders. Not surprising. Not surprising. Um, and, um, you know, when you think about trauma and so it's the, it sounds like it's the emotional scar in a way that's left by an event or circumstances that uh, in, uh, created a feeling in somebody that. Exactly. Uh, I mean, essentially what makes an event traumatic, right? And you have to think, you know, just to, to be very um, brief, it's the event, the experience, and that long lasting effect. So um, interesting that you're talking about trauma in terms of the long lasting effects. Um, I think, you know, from TV and movies, we we see a lot of um, depictions of trauma and the impact it has immediately. Um, what do you, what can you tell us about some of the differences between some of the short and long term effects of trauma? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, some of the. Uh, the individual's experience of trauma is is really affected about how, when, where, and how often it occurs, right? So trauma can have both short-term and long-term effects. And it and trauma affects the individual's coping skills or responses, and it can even affect their ability to engage in, in um, relationships. Um, and if it's at a very young age in childhood, it can actually interfere with developmental tasks. And I think it's important um, to, to recognize that trauma can really impact a person's behavior in ways that, that are hard sometimes for others to understand. You know, if, an, if a provider, um, often I hear providers say things like, oh, this person keeps coming back over and over again. I keep telling them to do the same thing and they don't do it. You know, it's, that, it's, it's their way of essentially um, protecting themselves um, based on their past, their past trauma, and certainly long-term um, uh, effects of trauma uh, can be extremely chronic and life-threatening. And even um, it, living living with a chronic illness can be considered a long-term stressor. Um, and I think you know, like HIV. You know, here we are talking about HIV. You know, living with HIV itself is is a long-term um, chronic stressor. Yeah, well, I think it's um, there are studies that show that just having an HIV diagnosis in and of itself is a traumatic event. Exactly. HIV-related discrimination can also be traumatic. I think that that refers to some you know, negative beliefs and feelings and attitudes toward people living with HIV, um, you know, and even the unfair treatment um, based on their real or perceived HIV status that can be very traumatizing. What do you, how do you go about identifying people um, that have trauma, short-term or long-term effects of trauma? So, you know, trauma is very complicated um, and it's really affected by, you know, people's experiences, their supports, their coping skills, their, you know, resilience factors, their family, their community. And I, and, you know, I think we have to look at behaviors, right? So all behaviors have meaning. 
And when you don't understand someone's behavior, that's when we say, you know, try to look a little bit deeper, try to find the root of that behavior. But there are some common um, signs and symptoms of trauma that might include things like uh, depression, anxiety, um, irritability. Um, people sometimes have difficulty controlling their emotions. And these are the folks that you might see at the front desk that get very angry and upset and anxious and agitated. Um, it, you know, the problems relating to others, problems in relationships. So those are some things that can, can possibly signal um, that there might be a, a, a traumatic uh, experience. So is it a good approach to say what's wrong with you to somebody like that when they're behaving in a, a you know, a contrary or agitated way? Or how, how do you go about asking about that? Yeah, so, so the, really the, the core and the underlying question, the core of a trauma-informed care approach is, is, is not what's wrong with you, really, but, you know, what has happened to you? Because when you ask someone, uh, you know, what's wrong with you, it's a very closed ended question. And you're likely to get, you know, what, what happens when you're asked what's wrong with you when you're agitated, you know, nothing, yeah, nothing exactly. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, very shut down. And yeah. I think when you ask what happened to you, it's a much more open and it might even lead to a helpful and uh, productive and potentially healing conversation. You know, um, uh, some of the things you've been talking about have uh, sort of led me to think about something um, the, about uh, trauma responses and how individualized they can be. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, you know, I think we have, again, you know, from TV and movies, we have this idea that, you know, people are traumatized and they should behave this way. Um, but there must be a lot of different ways that people respond depending not only on the type of trauma and the uh, the uh, number of traumatic incidents, but also on the individual themselves and on individual differences. Do you what, what kinds of uh, things do you see there? Yeah, so I think you know uh, we have talked a little bit about um, you know the experience of trauma, and that experience is a little different and and is profoundly, like I said, profoundly affected by affected by how, when, where, and how often it occurred. And I think that we have to look at, um, you know, the things that, um, that might potentially cause trauma, right, types of trauma. So we have what we call single um, devastating events, and those are single episodic trauma. Um, and those can result from, you know, um, multiple traumatic uh, events over time, or they can um, result from repeated sexual and childhood sexual abuse. And then you have um, complex trauma. And that comes from experiencing multiple sources of trauma over a lifetime. And even trauma can occur from hearing about or watching or interacting with other people who have had traumatic experiences as well. That happens a lot in healthcare uh, workers and people who provide services. Um, I, that's a vicarious trauma. Is that what you're describing? Exactly, vicarious trauma. And but I also think it's important to to mention, and especially in the times that you know we are in today, that not all people are equally impacted by trauma. So communities of color, LGBTQ, and Native and Indigenous people um, have a much higher burden of trauma in this country, and certainly in this world. When you 
mentioned before about childhood events and traumas that existed, you know, when we're young and those kinds of things. Um, can you talk about how those are, um, uh, how they function in in um, in creating a, a lasting effect on somebody? Yeah. So I think um, when we talk about trauma, and uh, um, and this is um, sort of um, widely used now and and widely referred to, we we have to talk about the ACE study, which is um, also called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Um, and this was a CDC and a Kaiser Permanente uh, collaboration where they really looked at um, data on 17,000 uh, members from Southern California receiving um, physical exams and their current health and status behaviors. And it, uh, it examined the impact of having experienced one or more of 10 categories of abuse and neglect and household dysfunction. So this ACE score then gave a picture of this total amount of stress during childhood. And what was found was that the more ACEs one experienced, the greater the impact on a person's health risks and the more serious the consequences to their health and well-being. Um, this is what we, we often have heard about is the dose response. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I remember reading somewhere that um, yep. if you have these kinds of experiences in your youth um, that are traumatic, that you it ends up changing the way the brain functions um, it, overall. It has a neurobiological impact, um, which in, in some ways rewires the brain. So tell me more about the study again. And, and so, you know, what 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 happened was traumatic experiences in childhood, we know in the teenage years, put children at at risk for violence, um, chronic health conditions, mental illness and substance abuses uh, later in, in adulthood. Um, and these experiences affect children for years and impact their potential in life. Uh, and we've known ACEs to 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 be things like. Um, experiencing violence, abuse, and neglect, um, even witnessing violence in the home, like a domestic violence um, situation, having a family member attempt suicide, but mm -hmm. not just um, actual abuse and neglect, but household function was also found to have these impacts, meaning, um, you know, having to do with instability due to incarceration of a parent or uh, parental separation, things like that had profound effects on, on children's experiences and later, obviously, their potential. But I think the first step was really to recognize that, that these children were at risk and, and it helped them better understand the experiences because ACEs were very common. Uh, they are common. About 61% of adults surveyed across 25 states reported they had experienced at least one ACE. And nearly one in six experienced four or more. That's pretty shocking. So these ACEs, um, it, any one of them would, could be considered a traumatic event. Is that the the idea? The traumatic of the they're called adverse childhood experiences, and they mm -hmm. certainly um, they they can affect children, and it impacts their potential later. And I think you know one of the best ways to explain it, um, and and this has been cited a number of times, um, a male child that had an ACE score of six, meaning they had six categories, they were they scored a point for six of the 10 categories of abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. 
has a 4,600% likelihood of later becoming an IV drug user when compared to a male child with an ACE score of zero. That's huge. Yeah, that's profound. So it sounds like these ACEs have impacts on uh, behavior. Um, do you think that they also have impacts on physical well-being? Um, so are, in other words, are there psychological and versus physiological effects of these ACEs or of long-term stress or trauma that can be differentiated? Yeah, well, definitely. I think um, we have seen that... Um, you know, ACE childhood, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs have serious health health um, consequences. Um, and they even have, have quantified it a little bit and said preventing ACEs, if we could prevent ACEs, we could potentially reduce a large number of health conditions. For example, 1.9 million cases of heart disease and 21 million cases of depression could have been potentially avoided by preventing ACEs. Wow, that's really, uh, really amazing. Is there any um, correlation between having ACE scores and uh, the HIV population, people with HIV? Is there? Yeah, so that was looked at. And actually, I looked into that a little bit as well, um, because just in preparation and sort of in our in our field that that we work in, you know, is there this this connection? And and I was not able to really find a specific connection between an ACE score and HIV. But what we did find uh, was the risk behaviors that are used as coping mechanisms. So a lot of times um, things like IV drug use, smoking, um, sexual promiscuity, those things are used by the individual that has maybe a scores in those areas as coping mechanisms, but they also increase the risk of HIV transmission. And I think that's where the correlation, uh, we can definitely, um, you know, say that, you know, the higher the A score and the higher use of coping mechanisms put someone at risk for, for these behaviors that um, have a higher risk of HIV transmission. Right. So, um, yeah, self-medicating or uh, exactly. self-soothing, self-coping, um, and um, higher risk behaviors, taking, um, making riskier choices through absolutely through engagement and other activities that are a risk for transmission for HIV. Absolutely. And so that's where we really got to get into the prevention, right? So I think that's where we really can can make a difference if we can can I recognize. Um, the, the communities and recognize these children at risk and, and really work on preventing those ACEs. So, so it sounds like just sort of to, to summarize a little bit for myself, it sounds like there are some of the behavioral or psychological um, effects of trauma, especially early trauma, include um, making some questionable choices about drug use, alcohol use, sexual behavior, um, that might some of the like other psychological effects might include things like major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. But then, in, in addition to that, we have some of the sort of stress-related disorders like cardiovascular disease and, uh, and things that we um, think of more as being part of, um, you know, sort of the stress response of like the really 
driven, ambitious executive, you know, but, but we might also see some of those in people who've experienced trauma as well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the causes of stress are really different for each person. Um, and, you know, not to not to diminish that internally motivated, you know, type A personality stress um, versus the external. It, it's really about control. And, you know, it, it's most externally applied trauma is not easily controlled. It's not the fault of that person. And that is really important uh, you know, when we're interacting with, with trauma victims, one of the most important things that one can say is what happened to you was not your so fault. So we, uh, we've got a pretty good definition going of trauma and some of the things that can impact a person that lead to having a trauma experience and um, making uh, somebody more sensitive or um, you know, challenging to work with um, and through no fault of their own, but um, because of their past experiences. Mm -hmm. What, a, as a provider of services for people uh, in healthcare, what do you do about providing care for those people? And how do you go about um, trying to recognize it and, um, and work with patients so that you're not like re-traumatizing them or aggravating um, an active trauma? How does a right. so healthcare think, provider yeah. do that? Exactly. And I think that's so important, Bob, because, you know, we know that 90 percent of, of public mental health clients have been exposed to trauma. And we really need to presume that all the people we care for have a history of traumatic traumatic stress and really exercise what we know as universal precautions. Right. People who have experienced trauma struggle with getting help. One of the most common outcomes of trauma is really avoidance. Um, and I think this was um, clearly defined by Dr. Carrie Ressler, who was a psychiatry professor at Harvard. And often those that experience trauma believe that healthcare providers will want you to talk about it and dredge it up. And mm -hmm. if you've been a victim of trauma, that is the last thing that you want to do um, when you when you are seeking um, medical care. And as um, a provider, I, and as a provider, I think it's always cautious to sort absolutely. of engage that, you know, start somebody on a discussion around that because you can activate them and not have closure, not have time to do closure to address it. But uh, in that moment, um, I, exactly. I think, you know, we do need to acknowledge it. But um, yeah, I think it's important, but it's important for providers to recognize that trauma is part of this person. And if we're going to treat the, the patient holistically, we need to also look at, you know, what is it about this person? Um, you know, what is it about this situation? Um, and how do we how do we engage that patient? And I think um you know, trauma-informed care by its by its definition really seeks to create this environment that reduces the impact of traumatic stress on both staff and, and, and clients um, as well as staff, I should say, um, because I think we also have to understand that, you know, people we work with can often come from, from traumatic backgrounds. But I think for patients, the, the, the trauma-informed care really offers this opportunity to engage more fully in their health care, but it's about developing that trusting relationship with yeah. their provider. And that's what improves the long-term health outcomes. I, I can certainly understand where somebody has a series of adverse childhood experiences may have underlying trust problems. Um, again, we're back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs because 
if you don't have safety and security, you have definitely got problems with trust. And Absolutely. so that's a lifelong uh, issue. So um, it sounds it's important for, for healthcare providers to start to build some trust with their patients and uh, encourage them to have confidence in the partnerships. Exactly. And I think when we look at the approach to trauma-informed care, right? So they, they there is what we call, you know, these four R's, right? And I think that's um, something that um, we can all identify with because the first step is really, you know, realizing, you know, realizing that all people, um, you know, may have trauma and it, and it affects individuals, it affects families, and it affects their communities. So by realizing this, and then recognizing the signs and symptoms of trauma, responding to it, and resisting that re-traumatization. So those are sort of those four R's, um, and and it's and it's very you know sort of common sense, but it's not something that I think healthcare systems in general, um, you know, we often we often practice. We're busy. We're trying to you know get things done, and it's not often something that's at the forefront, but it needs to be. So what were those four, you said four R's? So the four R's, which are really, um, it, it's it's a trauma-informed program and it's a, it's a talks about a fundamental shift, but really it begins with that real, realize, recognize, respond, and resist re-traumatization. So those are, it's very important. And I think that's what we need to start with, you know, an organization that's looking to be more trauma-informed care, this is really where you start. You know, um, I was just thinking while I was listening to you, you were talking a few minutes ago about um, the difference in control mm -hmm. when you have sort of self-imposed versus externally imposed um, stress. And then we're talking about this need to resist re-traumatization and to not, a, not try to um, push patients into talking about traumatic events. Um, and I, I was remembering... Um, something I learned about um, uh, women who have, were coming from violent, or any people who are coming from violent um, home lives, so from, from abusive relationships. And one of the things um, that we were supposed to do, I used to work with um, women in a shelter years and years ago. And one of the things we were never supposed to do was to tell them what to do. We always needed to try to help them figure out what they wanted to do. It was really important to give them, a, I guess, a sort of a, a look, an internal locus of control um, mm -hmm. for their behavior as opposed to an external, you know, responding only to an external locus of control. And I was wondering, is that kind of language ever used with trauma victims? Is that used in when you're thinking about how to talk to a patient in a trauma-informed care way? Well, I think it's really about, you know, um, you know, the principles of a trauma-informed care. And it and it really um is it, it's a power dynamic and it's keeping the power with on the, with the patient. The locus of power should always be with the patient and that respect um and listening and 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 harm reduction, meeting them where they're at. And you know, some of the most difficult patients that we identify in healthcare systems as being, you know, those non-adherent or difficult patients, those are the ones that we might want to look at this through a different lens, right? And instead of looking at their behavior, because behaviors 
are, um, have meaning and behaviors are symptoms, instead of looking at it like, you know, what's wrong with this person, we need to look at that and say, what happened to this person again? And, and, and really take a look at um, their behavior as a symptom instead of, uh, you know, that what's wrong with them and why are they behaving that way? Well, what happened to them that made them behave that way? Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's such a um, much more uh, empathetic sort of approach. To and I'm glad you brought empathy up because I think we don't often talk about it enough, right? So empathy and sympathy are two very different things. And I think we're all, um, you know, I, we've all said it. I've said it myself. Oh, I'm very sympathetic. I don't want to be sympathetic. I want to be empathetic. And there is a difference. Um, and, you know, Brene Brown, who has a great video, it's like a six minute video on YouTube about the difference between empathy and sympathy. Great video to just sort of, um, you know, view in your six minute uh, <laughs> morning or something. But it's really important. I think, thank you for bringing that up because I think it's important to recognize that empathy is such a core component of a trauma informed care approach. So, um... Uh, are there specific principles that should be followed that, um, you know, uh, or is there any kind of guideline around managing uh, trauma-informed care from a, we, we talked about the four R's, um, but are there other approaches that are important to consider when you're thinking about working with people, especially people with HIV? Yes, absolutely. Um, so SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, um, has six principles that guide a trauma-informed um, process. Um, and this is really about um, a way of being, right? So these are value-based principles. They are, uh, the, it's not a checklist. So, it, you know, there's not a checklist that'll say, okay, today we're going to be trauma-informed and we're going to do these things. It's not how it, how it goes. It's, you know, think of it as compassion, right? So you can never just do compassion one time, check it off and be done, right? It's a way of being, it's a way that you approach all of your interactions going forward. And there's uh, SAMHSA's six principles um, are based um, in values and their safety is number one, um, trustworthiness, transparency is number two, peer support, uh, number three, collaboration, mutuality, number four, empowerment, voice and choice, number five, and six is cultural, historic, and gender issues. And I think really safety is the first place we start, right? So safety, because we know that trauma has, has um, upset that person's sense of safety, and we need to first create the environment of safety. And that's where we begin. <laughs> Yeah, having a safe, you know, feeling safe, being able to talk to your provider, healthcare provider, and that there's no judgment or anything like that is important, that you're not going to be ridiculed, attacked, made feel poorly, shamed, any of those things. So having a safe environment is uh, super important. And I've, and been, in, the I've been in medical experiences where I've had providers that made me not feel safe and um, or uh, that I felt comfortable like uh, I didn't have a trusting relationship with that provider. And I eventually would change providers because that's, I can't continue to see doctors or provide, have somebody provide care that I don't feel safe talking to. And that's so important. So, so important. Not just 
the interaction, right? So I think, um, you know, really engaging with that client. I think today also we have this ability to, you know, put our head in the computer and not have that um, eye-to-eye contact, you know, with the patient. And that's so important, but it's really about, um, you know, respecting the boundaries and respecting the 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 patient, but not only the the interaction, but the environment. I think that's so important. Look around. Is you know, is the um, furniture worn and torn, or is it welcoming? Are the colors um, appropriate? Do you have information and and artwork in magazines that are representative of the population that you're caring for? So you know, in, in your in your office in, in a healthcare setting. Right, right. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah, that, that, you know, having a bunch of shabby furniture or magazines about um, women's issues, but you're primary, primarily uh, um, uh, men who have sex with men or a gay oriented. um, So it may not be the approach. You have to, you know, uh, target your um, environment to the patients that you're delivering service to, but make it welcoming and warm and colorful and friendly. I think that's that is very important. And I think it's also on the outside, like, you know, make sure your parking lots have are well lit, um, you know, uh, you know, keeping noise levels in the waiting rooms down. And I think it's also signage, you know, use welcoming signs um, and, and think about how you would feel if you walked into an environment and they have those little plexiglass holes and you stuff your money through them. You know, that says to me that there's a barrier there. And, um, you know, we just need to sort of think about it a little bit differently and welcome patients, not only environment, but welcome them, say hello. Don't make a patient wait um, to be acknowledged. I think that's um, extremely important and maintaining that communication. If, you know, a lot of times if there's a wait, that can be very upsetting for a person with, with a trauma history and just informing people of, of what's happening, I think brings that escalation way, way down. So they, they, they feel like they know what's coming and what's happening. Um, so um, I think it's important to have good communication for people if there's going to be a way or if something's um, to, to give them an idea of what to expect, because we have expectations, especially people who have a history of trauma, they need some extra, I think, uh, support in not having an unstable uh, environment or um, not knowing what's going to happen uh, next. Absolutely. And so it leaves them um, dwelling in anxiety or increasing um, their uh, uh, concerns about what you know what to expect or their anger and frustration because they may have a non a, you know a non a response that's a variant from just being impatient you know, they can exactly. get angry or upset or argumentative right trauma is an is a normal response to an abnormal situation right or an abnormal response to a normal situation it's the exact opposite of what we would think and people with trauma um you know, are always sort of at that ready stage, right? They're always, they've never really been able to get their their um, response down to a baseline. So you have to remember that they're already up, you know, here and just giving them a little bit of information and allowing them to um, understand what is happening um, certainly is comforting and can be, um, and, and can really make a big difference in someone's impression. You're describing that they, you know, the people with trauma um, often can be in a fight or flight as their daily baseline, um, which they're uh, they're activated. Their whole alert system is activated as they function in life. Constant, and it's you know we talk about that, and I and I think that's interesting. Um, 
uh, sort of an aside, but you know, we all have that fight, um, the, the fight, flight, freeze, right? And, right? and people with trauma, it's stuck in that on position. It never, they were never able to sort of, um, you know, typically we have the response, you know, it goes up, we're ready for that fight. Um, and then we come back down after the threat has been dissipated. People with trauma, the threat has never been dissipated. So they sort of are always in this state of readiness and they've never been able to sort of bring back to baseline. And that causes all kinds of um, responses that we might look at from the from the outside as, as being abnormal or having difficult behaviors. And that's what I meant by, you know, behaviors have meaning. It's interesting bringing up the fight, flight, freeze, because um, we go back to what we were talking about earlier about that, some of the individual differences in the way people respond. You can kind of frame it that way, right? Some people may be in the fight mode, and these are people who might be antagonistic quite often as a result of their trauma. And some people may be more avoidant, um, more in the flight um, phase. And then some people may even be uh, disengaged in like kind of a freeze mode, right? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I think it's, you know, a, a person who has continually and repeatedly under threat, you know, that trauma never goes away. Um, and, you know, even the slightest, um, you know, stress, they may react, right? And that's just how they, that's just how they are, are have developed. And that's what the chronic um, stress of trauma has, has done and sort of, that's their baseline. And so people that we think, why are you reacting like that? Well, that's right. because that's how they react, right? That, that was their coping strategy and their defense mechanism um, at the point at which they experienced traumas in the past. And so that hyperbolic response is uh, a result yep. of those previous coping mechanisms. And, and their response is their way of protecting themselves. Like that is how they protect themselves against any perceived threat, because that's what their body has had to do from a fight, flight, freeze perspective. Interesting. So creating a safe environment is really important. Um, one of the principles. That's the first part. Agreed. Yes, absolutely. If we're going to start anywhere, we need to start with safety. And I think, um, you know, also, you know, just, just, you know, being respectful to, you know, asking for pronouns, you know, the typical things that, you know, we're all starting to learn are important um, to engage people in their healthcare and really make them feel respected and safe. So what, what are some other principles that contribute to good trauma-informed care? So I think we have to look at trustworthiness, right? And so um, that's about building the trust. And not only does safety safely help that, but, um, you know, examples of trustworthiness are things like being clear, being authentic, um, you know, sharing your reactions and responses in a truthful manner. Because, you know, trauma... Trauma victims um, have a very finely tuned radar and they will detect other people's emotional states. I um, mean, they've had to, right? This is their, this is, they've had to develop this capacity as a form of, of, of vigilance to protect themselves. And if you're untruthful about your feelings, even if you're trying to protect them, they are likely to address, uh, likely to detect it. Um, so I think, you know, um, you know, building this trust and giving people full information um, and maximizing 
um, you know, what's what's going on. Tell, maximizing communication is really the essence of, of building trust. And, and, you know, if a person says to you, you know, I'm afraid of needles, don't poo-poo that. Don't pretend that you've walked in their shoes when you haven't. Um, be authentic. Say, it sounds like you're saying be authentic. Be authentic. Exactly. So you don't want to, if a person says I'm this, I'm that, you know, just yes, then then believe them <laughs> that they're, you know, uh, this is really what they're afraid of and don't poo-poo it. Don't, you know, say, oh, well, you'll get over it. That's not <laughs> what uh, will build trustworthiness. No, it's, a, it sounds, it's similar to when you're dealing with patients that have pain. And we're, we, we're taught in nursing school that when you ask somebody what their pain level is, you have to accept that. You have to believe that there may be other cues that tell you whether that's accurate or not, but you're still supposed to believe that level of pain and respond appropriately. So Absolutely. it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. Perfect example. And you're right. You know, and I think it's, you know, um, you know, the patient knows themselves best and just respect that. Yeah. Acknowledging what it is that they're telling you. Exactly. Are there other principles that you think are uh, that are important to have? We've talked yeah, about think, safety, you know, trust, just to highlight, Yeah, just to highlight, I think a few um, peer support. Now we've gotten a lot of bit, a, a lot of um, a lot better about offering peer support. Um, and, and peer support, I mean that it's about um, people who have that same lived experience, right? And especially in HIV, I think it's extremely important. Um, to have those benefits of peer support, things like, um, you know, it reduces the isolation, you know, um, you're not alone, um, helps affect that, you know, affecting engagement, you know, and serve, and peer support can serve as that bridge um, mm -hmm. between a person who might be receiving services and those, you know, community resources. And, you know, being in a peer group is, it does establish that sense of safety and hope and, you know, enhances collaboration and certainly um, hopefully maximizes some empowerment, but we all like to be with people um, like us, you know, um, this has also been the foundation of 12-step recovery programs, you know, that sure. therapeutic value uh, of, of one helping each other. I mean, I think there's a, you know, a lot to be gained um, if other people can teach and model good coping behaviors who've been, you know, who are in the same circumstance. Um, that's also helpful. Um, they can either provide a guidance on how they've gotten through whatever, um, or, you know, um, they can uh, model good behavior and you can see how they're coping differently and, um, and perhaps adopt that as a, a newer model. Absolutely. And I think also when you're, when you're, you know, um, as a provider, I think one of the best things you can do is ask the patient, you know, if they might like to have a trusted companion in the room, because, you know, that will will also give them a sense of safety, but that also gives them that peer support. And I know that there's some um, federally qualified health centers and other places, um, hospital outpatient clinics and such that often offer uh, peer navigators or peer support people. If you don't have one of your own, they may have a uh, somebody who's um, there in the agency or the service um, delivery location that can help um, at least be supportive through the experience. And so it's good to know what um, if your agency or um, uh, healthcare place doesn't provide that kind of thing. Knowing where, um, finding out in your own environment where that might service might be available to somebody who doesn't have um, supportive people, especially around the area of HIV, where there's so much stigma and people don't want to tell family members or 
um, friends. And so maybe they need an external support person to help them uh, manage and guide uh, as a guide through the healthcare system for HIV, which is daunting. There's a lot to know about managing HIV. Mm. And so for somebody who's relatively new to care, uh, it can be overwhelming and impact their adherence. And if they have a history of trauma, um, you know, finding a, a safe provider that you, you, see, you feel safe with, that you somebody you have trust with, maybe that's something that they need to have somebody who guides them uh, along the way initially uh, until they get uh, until they get sort of situated or comfortable. It can be critical. It can be actually make the difference between, you know, engagement and non-engagement. I've heard also that um, one of the principles of trauma-informed care is something called collaboration and mutuality. Yeah. And so what is, how is that different than like peer support? Yeah, so collaboration and mutuality is really about, um, you know, partnering. And, and that's where you are leveling those power differences um, between, um, you know, provider and patient. And it's really about, you know, understanding that healing, you know, happens in relationships and that meaningful sharing of power and sharing of decision-making is so important. And I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's about getting to know and understand the people you care for, listening, you know, to their experiences and validating those feelings. You know, I think shared decision-making is one way we can do this. Um, and certainly, um, you know, uh, have a, a, a candid discussion with the patient about, you know, what are their goals? Not what is the provider's goals, but what are the patient's goals? What is it that they are, are, are looking for and, and what would they define success as? So empowering and, a patient, and, make, helping a patient feel empowered is, um, is part of this, right? And yes. um, I think patients with trauma, they have a uh, a history, the trauma itself, it takes away control from their lives. And so uh, if they continue to be living in a state of trauma that they don't have, they're, they're always struggling to gain control. And, and a lot of that aberrant behavior or dysregulation of emotions are related to that attempt to gain control of something when it, they feel that it's out of control, even though it may be just, you have to wait 10 more minutes for the doctor. Yeah, yeah. And offer choices, you know, offer offer them choices. And it's not about what the provider wants, but you can, you know, certainly choices, um, uh, you know, fit into this principle um, and, uh, you know, developing that shared agenda is so important because it's really about empowerment. Just like you said, Bob, it's that patient empowerment. And, you know, when you have a conversation, you know, we've talked about this before, but you know, when when we have a conversation, um, it's not about, you know, telling a patient what to do. Take your medication, you know, exercise, get your labs drawn, don't smoke, have safe sex, did you take your meds? You know, it's all of that. That's not a conversation because typically, you know, if you've had, you know, teenagers or anything like that, you know <laughs> what happens when you tell them what to do. Directive, it's, yeah, big giving directives is not usually very efficient. <laughs> no, and they usually will do either the exact opposite or they won't do it at all or they'll tune you out. Um, they might, you know, certainly they'll feel offended um, and, and likely get angry. So, you know, it's really about, you know, communication, having conversations, not, you know, um, closed-ended questions, you know, open-ended questions, you know, how is it going for you so far? How can I care for you today? 
Um, you know, what would you like me to know about you? You know, those are some kinds of questions that you can have that might generate conversation. Right. So it's identifying goals and then um, partnering with the client um, and or patient and recognizing, encouraging them to what can you do if this is the goal? What can you do to get closer to that, if not all the way there? That's a model that comes up in substance abuse and recognizing that in addiction, people may not be able to just quit. So if they're going to treatment for heroin, you, you don't say the same day and cigarettes because mm -hmm. it's yeah, too much. It's too much. And so what yeah. can you do? And so that's the, the kind of thing that, you know, partnering with mutuality is important. Very, yeah. very important. It's it's so interesting in this conversation that we're having today. I think I came into this thinking trauma-informed care was about being empathetic and having empathy for a client who may have experienced trauma. But what I'm starting to get is a sense that some of these principles that are used in trauma-informed care are actually therapeutic around the trauma itself, right? If the trauma takes away a sense of control then these approaches to care can help to re reinstall those and help patients uh, manage uh, their trauma, even outside of the therapeutic context of whatever the medical uh, issue is that they're visiting for. And I think so a component of that is the provider's own what they bring to the table, their own previous experiences, their bias, um, and, and being you have to be self-aware as a, a caregiver um, so that when you come to the table, you're, um, you're conscious of whatever you have been through and it doesn't overshadow what the person's telling you um, about what they've been experiencing. Exactly, exactly. And it's all about that partnership and it's all about um, you know, the holistic care. And that sort of leads to the final principle to trauma-informed care, I think, which is uh, sort of addressing cultural, historical, and gender issues that your patient may have experienced. And yeah, so, you know, I think an organization, um, you know, has to move past cultural stereotypes and biases and really look at offering and leverage, you know, offering gender responsive services, but leveraging you know, um, the healing value of traditional cultural connection and address historical, historical trauma. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's especially today, you know, if we look back um, over the last even year or so, you know, I think that, you know, it's so important to understand how culture and communities and, um, the discriminations against populations throughout time impact, um, you know, their overall care and 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 trauma. This is true trauma that they have lived through for for generations sometimes. Which leads to medical mistrust, right? And, and fear of accessing services because of um, uh, previous known traumas, whether. Those, so that's a cultural trauma versus an individualized trauma. That doesn't take away that they would have their own individual traumas, but there are some bigger picture traumas that um, are important to recognize and, and see as an overlay on top of uh, somebody's personal circumstance. You know, yeah, it's just right. thinking yeah. that, you know, if we think of uh, something like racism as being, um, like if you are if you are subjected to racism and to acts of racism, mm -hmm. this is this could be traumatic. Many many racist acts, uh, certainly you know some of the more extreme ones, would be extremely physically traumatic. 
mm-hmm. and psychologically traumatic. And even the small microaggressions may also yes. add up over time. Um, and, 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 you know, I just was thinking, you know, we talk about um, a, one common risk factor that you hear about in medicine is that people of African descent often have a higher risk for hypertension and cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. Could this be because people of African descent also mm-hmm. have a daily repeated trauma of dealing with racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something to to consider. Uh, and I think, yeah, I mean, it definitely could be. Um, there are some genetic factors, obviously, that, that we all know, but you can't ignore that, right? I just think it would be... Um, I, I think we have to acknowledge it and, and, and not ignore it because really it's about um, you know, looking at inclusion and respect and sensitivity, but not making assumptions. So, you know, that, you know, by doing that though, I think you're right. We have to look at all aspects of, of what impacts people from a holistic perspective, not just their, you know, their race and their ethnicity, you know, but their environment, their community, their, their past experiences, their events, and how those uh, impacted um, their life because it will impact their health outcomes. Definitely. And when you th- we were talking earlier about the importance of partnering with patients, I think a strategy healthcare providers can in, uh, embrace and use is to take training on motivational interviewing, oh, um, yes. which is a lot about partnering with a, a, a patient and um, it's it, and they're actually ultimately the ones who lead to the decision that gets made. Um, and it's a way of being with somebody and interacting with somebody. It's not a set of principles, very much like trauma-informed care, um, but it's a great uh, mechanism that can be employed by the healthcare provider to um, help patients uh, with figuring out what they can and can't do and what they're um, what they're willing to do and help activate those uh, behaviors or the, the outcomes, the health outcomes to be better. For sure. And, you know, I like to always sort of, one of my favorite, and actually I have this right on my um, my desk, and one of my favorite quotes with, uh, by Dr. Maya Angelou, and it says, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel, Right. I think that's the essence of of recognizing trauma and and using a trauma-informed care approach. And I think that's an amazing place to, we've come to the end of our time, and that's an amazing place to end and very thoughtful. Um, So it's time for us to wrap up today. I um, have a a much better understanding of trauma and trauma-informed care. And I want to thank, uh, say a big thank you to you, Maureen, uh, Marlene, for all of this great information and the thoughtfulness of uh, what you shared. Um, and so thank you, Marlene Morinino. And to my co-host, Sharon McKay, thank you for collaborating with me on a great um, podcast program. I'm Bob Sidlow, and thanks for listening to HIV Update today. Mm-hmm.